Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management special client event entitled A New Paradigm for COVID-19 Testing. Today's event is the ninth in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and Dr. Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo BioWorks. A recording of this conversation will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com. You can also access this and all past Rockefeller Capital Management special client events by searching for the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series in your favorite podcast player. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good afternoon, everybody. Rockefeller clients, our colleagues at Rockefeller, friends of Rockefeller, welcome to, as Tom said, our ninth in the special series we've been doing for clients since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. We've got a particularly timely, compelling uh, topic today and speaker, but before I get to that, given uh, the number of regular listeners we have here, I wanted to just review uh, the sessions we have coming up over the next few weeks, and then we'll get to the uh, speaker at hand. So uh, next Friday, June 5th, we're going to take a look at the impact of COVID-19 on the secondary education space. We'll be doing it from the perspective of three leading university presidents, Brian Casey, the president of Colgate University, Mary Schmidt Campbell, the president of Spelman College, and Bob Zimmer, the president of the University of Chicago. Two weeks from tomorrow on June 12th, my friend Steve Schwarzen will be here discussing the path forward. As always with Steve, he'll cover a full range of issues, economic, geopolitical, US uh, and around the world. For those who don't know, Steve is the chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Blackstone. And then three weeks from tomorrow, David Rockefeller Jr., a board member at Rockefeller Capital Management and a good friend of our firm, will be hosting a panel focused on philanthropy and impact investing during COVID-19. As uh, many of you know, uh, Rockefeller Capital Management is very focused on the ESG investing space. So David's going to have some uh, terrific speakers on and pursue uh, that topic as well as philanthropy and changes uh, that are uh, taking place in that space as a result of all of the changes in the world around us. So with that, I want to turn to today's topic, which again is timely and compelling for each and every one of us. This comes uh, together today through Brian Kaufman, who's head of all private investments at Viking Global Investors. Brian's uh, personal investment background is in biotech and genomics, and Viking was one of the earliest institutional investors in Ginkgo Bioworks. And as a result, I'm pleased to have on the Rockefeller Network today, Dr. Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. Ginkgo is a synthetic biology company that programs cells for customers in the chemical, pharmaceutical, food, and energy industries. Jason and Ginkgo are part of the reason the United States continues to lead in the biotech genetic, genetic engineering space. And with that, I'm going to turn it uh, right to Jason and not try to summarize more about where Ginkgo came from and what they're doing today. Uh, but Jason, uh, good afternoon and uh, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Appreciate you having me on. Particularly appreciate you being here on a day as hectic as I'm sure today was for you. But before we get to that, I don't want to jump to the punchline uh, before we uh, run through how we got uh, to the announcement you made today. Love to start uh, a little bit around uh, your background um, and 
uh, go all the way back to some of the things that you studied, which uh, teed you up for founding Ginkgo coming out of your time at MIT, but maybe a little bit on, uh, on uh, where your training was and the things you were looking at, and then we can go from there to uh, uh, how you uh, uh, started Ginkgo, and, and then we'll, we'll go the rest of the way down the path here. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so originally trained as a, a chemical engineer at MIT, uh, and then stayed on uh, to do a PhD in biological engineering. And that was where I met the other founders of the company. Uh, so there was four of us in grad school together, and then the fifth founder was a professor at MIT, uh, this fella, Tom Knight. And, you know, maybe I'll give you like a little bit on Tom's background so, so you can kind of get the philosophy of Ginkgo. Uh, he's an interesting guy. So, uh, so he was actually a professor professor in um, electrical engineering and computer science at MIT, so not biology, uh, starting in the early 70s. So I have like great old black and white photos of Tom with his uh, master's thesis, which was this like refrigerator sized mini computer, as it was called at the time. Uh, so, you know, Tom, Tom taught the semiconductor design course, early ARPANET work, died in the wool electrical engineer, and then in the mid 90s decided the interesting thing to program in the future wouldn't be computers, it would be biology. And his core insight was, look, DNA is digital code, right? It's A, T, Cs, and Gs, not zeros and ones, but you can read it with DNA sequencing, uh, which is one of the announcement we're gonna talk about today, and you can write it with DNA synthesis or DNA printing. And if you can read and write code and you have a machine to run that code, which is how Tom thought of a cell, well, that's programming. Uh, and Tom was like, well, I've been building programming tools. Maybe I can help out. So he moved his whole focus into, into biology and he kind of uh, looked at it from the eyes of a computer scientist. And, and so Ginkgo really grew out of that vision. We, you know, we started the company in 2008 after the other four of us uh, finished our PhDs. Uh, and then for the last 12 years, we've been basically working on Tom's vision of what does the platform technology look like that makes it so that you can program a cell like you program a computer. Uh, and so we can talk more about that. But that, does that make sense, that sort of, that idea of DNA as code uh, that we can read and write? It does, uh, and it's fascinating uh, where it started. Uh, so, so a little bit more, because people will find this interesting. It, it is, uh, in many ways, uh, the, the quintessential, um, you know, American startup success story. Uh, so yeah. how, how did it come together? I mean, you, Tom had that expertise and he had that vision, and you all are training yeah. with, but. You know, is it the five of you sitting around a card table saying, okay, this is what we're going to start and this is, you know, this is what we're going to do next week? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, we, we, we sort of had this view on what we wanted to build. What we weren't sure of was uh, exactly what that technology would look like and, and which markets to apply it in, right? So, you know, we started the company in 08 and for five or six years, we basically were building the technology. Right, um, and I, I'll tell you what's in there in a sec. But you know, we, we built out our, our first version of the platform and started taking customers around 2014. Uh, but for those first five or six years, we we're basically a 20-person company, uh, backed largely by like government grants and things like that. And then took our first customers initially in the fragrance industry, if you can believe it, uh, which was like you get mint oil from a mint leaf. We would program cells to produce that mint oil via fermentation, kind of like you'd make beer. Uh, and then uh, pretty clearly Capital Limited decided to fundraise. Uh, we did Y Combinator out in Silicon Valley, which you might have heard of, like uh, companies like Airbnb and Dropbox and Stripe uh, all came through Y Combinator. We were the first life science company that YC had ever invested in. Uh, and that was summer of 14. Uh, and then about six months later, uh, we met Brian and the, and the folks at Viking. 
Uh, and that was our first big uh, equity investment. Uh, and then since Y Combinator, we've raised um, about $900 million. Uh, companies valued a bit over uh, about four and a half billion, um, and about 400 people are based in Boston. And so, so we had sort of two eras of the company. Uh, one was like, get the technology working. And then the last five years, expand the platform and move it into more and more markets. So to give you an example, we have a $100 million joint venture with Bayer to program microbes to live on the roots of corn and produce fertilizer. We have a spin out, $120 million spin out company called Motif that's doing uh, animal free meat. So like, um, you're familiar with like the Impossible Burger, right? The veggie burger that bleeds. Well, the, the blood in the Impossible Burger is actually made by cells that have been programmed to have the gene for hemoglobin. That's a cell programming project. We have a large partnership with Roche to discover new antibiotics. And for Ginkgo, those are all cell programming projects. We're a common platform that works with all those companies in different markets to, to do their cell programming. Uh, that, that ended up being the business model. And Jason, where, where does it, so, you, you know, you've got these, uh, these uh, joint ventures, these partnerships that, with these companies. Where, where do the yeah. concepts come from? The companies come to you and say, we want to leverage, uh, you know, the platform you've built or uh, so how, how is, you know, how, how does that come together? You know, project by project. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 so, you know, for us, it's, we, we consider this to be like the, the, the first real horizontal platform in the space that's trying to do cell programming for whatever the application from fragrances to pharmaceuticals to food, right? And that's a new type of business in the space. Traditionally, any one of those companies would have had an internal R&D team with scientists kind of trained like I was, uh, standing at a lab bench doing work by hand. But if you come to our facility at Ginkgo, it's you know 120,000 square feet of robotic automation to basically standardize that lab work and run it at huge scale to drop the cost. And so that, that what we're finding is we can now run you know, about 20 to 40 times cheaper than the scientists at these companies would be able to do the work themselves. And so they're sort of outsourcing work to us they would have previously done on their own. And so we have to go out and explain that. And, and what's happening is once we get a customer, we can repeat and do a lot more business with them. And then other, other companies in the space find out about it. But it was a lot of, particularly in the early days, it's a new market going out and, and explaining to people how you could use the technology. Yeah. And, and now, obviously, as you said, you've got 400 employees and you've been scaling it. So is the as you start to to continue to do more and more specific applications, uh, does this the scale just accelerates then? Yeah, I mean to give you a sense of scale um, on for DNA printing, which is a technology where you go on a computer, you type ATC GGGG, you hit print, and out of uh, machines at Ginkgo will come the piece of DNA you asked for, up to about ten thousand letters long. Okay. Uh, and that technology, Ginkgo uses about 25% of worldwide gene printing. It's designed by us. Uh, so, and, and what we do is once you've printed that gene, you can put it into a cell, and that's how you like put new code in there to make it do something new. That's, and that's that kind of programming aspect of our, uh, of our analogy there. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, and it sounds like uh, the, the, the number of applications is just going to grow and grow and grow. Um, so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the announcement today and, and how, you, yeah. how you got to this space. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would guess some of this is, I mean, just given the timeline here, you've kind of jumped in with two feet in the last few months. Um, yep. so, so just talk a little bit about the, 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 the notion of, of uh, widespread scale testing and, 
you know, uh, when when you looked at what was going on and said, wait a minute, we can we can use our platform to do this and how it came together in, in the announcement today with the capital from, uh, you know, from your investors from Viking and Global Atlantic and the partnership with uh, Illumina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the so the, so the, big fir the very first thing we did was we said, look, we have this general purpose platform. We'll work with anybody who's doing vaccines or therapeutics. Right. So as an example, we have uh, you might have heard of a company called Moderna, uh, which has the first uh, this, this RNA vaccine. It's the first vaccine into clinical trials in the U.S. Uh, and they had some promising results uh, uh, not too long ago in a phase one. So, so that, that's a, a new class of uh, RNA based vaccine. Um, it, those have never been manufactured at scale before. So we have a relationship partnership with Moderna to optimize their manufacturing process. That's one example of how we're using our automated platform to work with folks in the COVID-19 space. So that was the very first thing we did. We said, where can we help people with cell engineering, right? Because we do a lot of that. And then one of the things that started to occur to me, and this would have probably been, I don't know, around the end of March, was, you know, this, this thing has been a very, I don't know how it's been for you, Greg, but, but the, um, you know, going through uh, the last few months of COVID-19 has been a very interesting experience. Like, like literally, I, uh, I think the two and a half weeks before Boston implemented, three weeks before we implemented a shutdown, I had been, I was supposed to be on a family Disney cruise, you know, right? Like, you know, the, the, the level of shift in uh, how quickly this thing came up and, and exhibited the magnitude of the issue, it, it's really, it's shocking, right? Uh, and so I think one of the things that, that, it made clear to me was biology out of control like this is not a thing that we can have happening, right? Uh, you know, the last time we all lived through something like this was in 1918. Uh, and to see it, you know, I think we all kind of had, in the, at least in me, in the back of my head that, oh, well, we have modern medicine and, you know, we've met, there's been so much technical progress since then. Could, you know, there's no way it could get that bad again, right? Um, and I've been reading, you know, I've read a whole bunch of books now on, on that pandemic. And the amount of things that we're repeating from that is, is unbelievable. Uh, and so, so from my standpoint, we looked at it as Ginkgo. We said, look, we're in the business of programming cells. People are going to be programming biology like we program computers. Just like, you know, Google has, uh, you know, cybersecurity, we're going to need biosecurity. We're going to need to be able to make sure that on the other side of COVID-19, something like this just can't happen again. And so we felt that as, as sort of the world's largest platform for programming cells, we wanted to also make sure we were building up that response layer for an event like this, okay? Uh, that way, again, this technology could be misused in the future. We want to be able to respond if that's the case. But also, nature is going to keep throwing these things off, right? You know, and, uh, and a lot of things about our modern society, global travel, much bigger cities, are actually, compared to 1918, more favorable for outbreaks. Right. Uh, and so we look at this and said, here's our opportunity. It's a global scale problem. It's going to be huge investment in building infrastructure to respond to COVID-19. With some work, we can make this future proof so that you won't have a pandemic again on the other side of this. And so that that then became a big focus for the company over the last couple months and is what brought us into testing. But does that make sense? This issue of, you know, you, you know, if you're going to program biology, you got to be able to respond to malicious use. You have to be able to respond if bad biology uh, shows up, like the kind of code that came out of uh, out of nature this time around. Does that make sense? Totally. And actually, uh, Jason, you know, it's it's a it's it's a relief to me and to many listening that people like you uh, look at that and say we're you know we're in this. Uh, 
you know, we know what we're doing here and we're going to jump in and, and, and try to address it because you, you, you were saying you don't know what it's been like, uh, you know, uh, for me or it, has it been similar? It, it's been the same for everybody. The, the shocking speed, and this is why the, the markets have been so challenging because, um, you, know, you know, we went, and I, I say this all the time to people, we went from an economic standpoint in the United States, arguably the strongest economy in 50 years, the most people employed, the fewest people unemployed, uh, yeah. uh, nine or 10 years in, you know, from the time we were kind of crawling out of the credit crisis at the end of February. And, and you know, literally a few weeks later, your, your Disney cruise is off and, and the world is shut in a way that is, um, you know, is supposed to be in fiction novels and fiction movies. Uh, and it, it, it just entered, uh, you know, it entered everybody's life. So I think that that uh, that that the shock of that that caused you to say, well, wait a minute, this is what we're in this and let's figure out how we're going to, uh, you know, I like the cyber analogy, uh, except it's bio. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, 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 and look, I mean, you know, from the standpoint of the country going forward, because that's one of the issues that that uh, that, uh, you know, that we, we can all agree on here. Uh, it's happened on a fairly regular basis over the last 15 or 20 years, just not to the same degree here. So why will we not have situations like this going forward, which therefore what you're working on and, and, and where you got to today and what you're hoping to do going forward is going to be relevant for decades as far as the eye can see? Yeah, I mean, I, I, at a minimum, the, the scale of this thing is such that we, it just, you, you know, we can't have shocks like this to, to the system of this magnitude, right? And I, and I think it highlights one of the things that I'm often actually trying to explain to people, which is like, wow, biology is powerful technology, right? You know, like, like I'm usually, you know, I'm like rewind the clock five months and I'm, I'm like, hey, have you ever actually thought about what happens when you plant a seed? And you add air, water, and sunlight, and that thing self-assembles solar panels, manufacturing equipment, all on its own with no no uh, factory to build it or anything else. Like, isn't that crazy technology? And people are like, oh, my gosh, yeah, I had never really thought about that. You know, right? And you're like, yeah, there's actually more nanotechnology in your houseplant than your iPhone. And they're like, wow, that's shocking. You know, biology, yeah, maybe it is powerful. Well, now we're all living, you know, the evidence of, of how powerful biology is, right? And we are coming up on a century where biology uh, and not, you know, we're moving off kind of the programming computer century into the programming biology century, right? Of course, we need to get good at response to this, of course, right? Because we're going to deploy the engineered biology to do all kinds of wonders, right? But at the same time, we need to be careful uh, and safe deploying a technology like this. And so that, that was really the impetus that, that, that kind of said, we said, okay, we have to take this very seriously, it's, it's an enormous opportunity to build out this technology. Let's do it. Let's lean in. Uh, and so I'm happy to talk next about like how should you respond to something like this. But I did want to land like why I think yeah we are going to be living with it for the next 50 to 100 years, both from nature and because our tools to program biology will be getting better. I think uh, the the notion of this it, it's it's the cyber part of engineer tech of engineer biology is fascinating. But let's go, uh, Jason, because so many people. You know, you, you got a tremendous yeah. amount of media coverage today, given the focus on this uh, and, yeah. and um, you know, and, and lots of people saying I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure that they're hopeful that this can have a big impact on opening up whatever their town, their county, their university, their company. So can you talk a little bit about and, and we can come back to implications going forward and and some of the those concepts. But first, let's go right to the core of what you yeah. uh, what, what the announcement today allows you to build and and some of the applications that uh, that can come out of that that hopefully can normalize society in many different places. 
Yeah. So, so, so yeah, let me, so I'll give you a little bit of a like response, you know, response framework to a pandemic. Okay. Right. So, so at the end of the day, what we're all planning for is a vaccine, right? That, that, that ends this thing. Okay. You can theoretically develop a therapeutic, which is like, I'm sick and I'm going to take this therapeutic to have a better outcome in the hospital. It's very hard to develop therapeutics on a short time horizon. Vaccines, on the other hand, they're, they're, they take longer, but there's like a little more predictability in vaccine development versus therapeutic. And so what you've seen is things like Moderna and others trying to say, can we accelerate the speed to a new vaccine, the fastest of which has ever been uh, the Ebola vaccine, which was, I think, four to five years? Can we get that down to a year? I mean, that would be amazing, right? And, uh, and, and so you see these big push. You hear like about the warp speed program at the White House to try to speed all these things up. I, ho- I hope so, right? But, but, but let's, just, let's just say we're a year out from a broadly available vaccine. I think that, 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 that is not a, that's not, would not be a shocking outcome, all right? That means in the interim, you know, we're, we're trying to open our economy as much as we can in the face of a pandemic, right? And, and I think at the scale of the country, it, it's a little hard to get it in your head. So you can have all these big, you know, and it's become kind of politicized about like, well, how bad could it be and how many people will die? Let, let, me, let me shrink it down to the scale of a company because a lot of people on the phone here are, are an organization, a university or a company, right? A single place. You know, if you look at a, a place like say Tyson Foods, right? What happens is a single employee is going to show up at your organization and they're going to have COVID-19 and they're not going to know it. And they're going to interact with people at some rate. And, and I'll give you a light, like, you can become no, novice epidemiologist today, right? Uh, an, an effective contact rate within your organization, all right? And an effective contact, which is a horrible term, basically it means that if I interact with a person and I'm infectious, they end up getting it. That's, that's, that's effective. So this Zoom call is not effective, okay? But if we were in person together and we were talking together in a room for 15 minutes and there wasn't a ton of air circulation, that very well could be an effective contact, okay? And so the question is, how many effective contacts does that person have at your workplace that day, the next day, and the next day? Because after that, they're going to become symptomatic and, and maybe self-isolate. Or they might be one of the you know, percent of cases, and this number is still debated, but, you know, again, it could be five, it could be 20% of the cases that are completely asymptomatic. And they're just walking around for 15 days having contacts, effective contacts in your organization. And then some of those people are going to get it, and then they're going to have some number of effective contacts, and then you're going to have a localized outbreak in your workplace, in your university. And then what's going to happen? Well, you're going to have to shut down. You're going to have to deal with brand damage. You're going to have to deal with workplace worker confidence in coming back after you've put that outbreak to bed to get the the pork industry back you had the federal government coming in and dpaing that 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 industry sort of drive worker uh uh, workers to show up right you know so 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 there is a an enormous at at the level of an organization it's actually a lot easier you don't have to have the big debate about what what's the overall impact on the on the country you just have to say oh man i really don't want to have an outbreak at my company and so that, that's kind of what we started to circle up at Ginkgo. And we said, all right, well, the private sector could play a big role, particularly here in the United States, in saying, let me make my workplace outbreak free. And the reason I want to do that is business continuity, brand protection, uh, worker safety, and so on. Okay. And as a side benefit, I'm going to call up my local governor, my county, you know, my, my mayor, and say, look how many tests I'm adding into our citywide pool 
to help out with the with our collective problem, right? And so that that was sort of the the you know the the path that that we got there. But it ties you know you have to you have to think about it as like an organization and an outbreak, right? Th those to me are the are the pieces of this that that you have to get in your head if you're a business leader right now, and you have to weigh what are the probabilities I have an outbreak and what can I do to reduce those probabilities. And and can and so Jason, t talk about um, and uh, if you if you turn me into a mini epidemiologist, it'll be uh, quite yeah. a, a, an accomplishment. But talk about how the partnership today with Illumina and and the the testing that you're bringing on a larger scale, how will it work? So and actually, let's 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 go instead of company, let's do university, which is a, a topic yeah, sure. for people. And let's say you, you've got a university with um, you know twenty five thousand students and thirty five thousand people yeah. in total. In a in a relatively not in, in a in a in a in a place where there's there are people in the town and in the neighboring area, so maybe it's 75,000 people around there, and and you're a university president and you want to bring the students back in September or August. So how how might this help and how does it work with the with the uh, the Illumina part of it? Sure. Yeah. All right. So. So the, the first thing you're, you're again, so I give you your, your mini epidemiology lesson, right? So the, the two things you're going to really care about is the probability that a person showing up at your organization has COVID-19 and they don't know it. Okay. And so that, that's number one. And then number two is that effective contact rate based on how you organize your organization. Like, do you have two students in a dorm room or does each dorm room only have one? You tune your effective contact rate. Do you have lectures or just small group classes? Do you have uh, shields up between in the, in the study hall uh, between the desks or do you not, right? All those things are to attune the, the rate at which the virus would spread were it to arrive, okay, on, uh, in your campus in this case, okay? So that's, that's your number one thing. And, we, and then your second thing is that probability that someone shows up with it, all right? The probability yep. that, that they show up with it is out of your control, basically, okay? It, it is set by the community that you are in, right? And so this is why this problem is also very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. It's not one size fits all, okay? If you are in Boston where you have, you know, 16 cases per 100,000 people, that's different than if you're in Texas where you have four cases per 100,000 people, and it's very different than Hawaii where it's 0.02 right now. Okay, right. And so your your strategy is going to be different. The amount of uh, PPE and build out and other stuff you need to do in Hawaii is going to be different for University of Hawaii than uh, Northeastern or something in Boston. Okay, um, does that make sense? That issue of like the local environment is going to play a big role because of the probability of a person picking it up is is variable. Uh, does that make sense? As one point? Absolutely. As just that's a okay. that's a good starting point. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so, all right. So then now you've got some probability people show up and you have some rate of spreading and those together plus a model. And, and we do this uh, for partners, but basically like an, a model for that type of workplace. So a university would have a different epidemiological model than a, than a company. Okay. Based on those two things, you have some probability, all right, that a person's going to show up in the next 45 days and some probability that that's going to turn into an outbreak based on the, the spreading rate. And, and you can just run those numbers. And like, you know, if you look in the city of Boston, if you, if you had a, you know, a hundred person company in the city of Boston over the next, you know, 45 days, uh, it, it, you're basically a, a coin flip of having someone show up with COVID. If you're 
a thousand people, uh, it's it's basically a hundred percent. Okay, so you're gonna get a case, and they're gonna spread at the rate of that of that effective number. Okay, and so now the question is, shoot, I just ran my numbers, and I'm gonna have an outbreak. What do I do? <laughs> right. So one option is, okay, I I can't open, or I have to cut down dramatically. Like I have to have a fifth as many people here or something like that. And then now suddenly my business is not effective or my school doesn't work, right? And so now, so that's one road and that's effectively what we've done with the whole economy. That's social distancing uh, at, at great economic and, and social consequence. The other alternative is you can set up essentially a testing program where with, with some regularity, you are going to test different people on campus in order to identify an outbreak before it spreads. So that one person is gonna show up, they might get caught immediately, depending on your, on your testing strategy, or maybe they infect a couple other people and by then they get caught. And there's a contact tracing of who they were in, and those people get tested and you, and you tell everybody that group to socially isolate, but the rest of the organization can keep operating, right? And that, and that is why you need testing. And so what happens is based on that epidemiological model, you get, predicted some number of tests that you need to run. And if you run them, then you should be able to keep a lid on, on outbreaks. And that's where testing fits in. If you don't do testing, you're basically gonna just run at the rate of that model. And if you're not running that model, then you actually have no idea what your likelihood of an outbreak is. And in many places around the country right now, with any, any group of people of substance that are gonna be meeting in an office, in a, in a school, in any kind of manufacturing, you're, you have a high likelihood. And so, it, you know, what, what's happening right now is people don't really know that and they're going to run an uncontrolled experiment for the next 45 days until the numbers catch up to them, right? And so that, that, that's not ideal. Uh, it's not ideal for us collectively. It's going to create a lot of, a lot of problems, I think. Uh, and, and I think the better idea is run the models, figure out the right way to, to keep a lid on it before you have that outbreak um, and, and, and testing is the linchpin. And so what we've done with Illumina is we're trying to figure out ways to bring online massively more testing at a lower price point so that we can prevent outbreaks in workplaces and schools and other organizations. That, that's, the, that's the goal, okay? So I can explain how an aluminum machine does that. It'll get a little technical, but does that make sense? It, it that, does. That, like, yeah, no, that's that a, issue of the out outbreaks? Yeah, it's a great overview. And, and, it's, and, and by the way, it was uh, very clear and transparent. But what, as you get into the aluminum model, one, one thing you could point out is the difference between this uh, and the way testing's been done historically, because this is new, right? Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. Yeah. So, you know, what, what I think also makes this whole thing confusing is people are sort of like, well, there, you know, the, we, we have had, there has been testing over the last three months, and there's a lot of, like, political conversations around, did we have enough testing? Did we not have, okay, let me, let me explain. The, the, the last, you know, two and a half months have been the acute phase of this thing, right? It's almost like, a nuclear bomb went off and there's like the shock wave and then there's like the radiation afterwards the you know the fallout right and like we we made it through the shock wave right it was like oh my gosh like this is exponentially growing we didn't even know it was here you know now we know it's way bigger than we thought we got to close up and deal with it and during that phase what you needed was clinical diagnostics right in other words your clinical diagnostics is an existing industry the customer is a doctor, right? Uh, and they're trying to make decisions about a single patient and they need information. They're like, I need to know, does this patient have COVID or the flu? All right? And so they ask for a test, just like you would get any blood test or anything else when you're in the hospital. And it gets done by a clinical diagnostics company like Quest 
or LabCorp, you get the results back and they make a choice, all right? The value of it is, is basically the value to that individual patient's healthcare and it's paid for by insurance. And that was what we needed when we were overwhelming hospitals and mostly just dealing with the patients we had while we closed down maximal economic damage, maximal social damage to just stop the spread as fast as we could. All right, well now we're, we made it through that. You know, we, we flattened the curve, hospitals didn't get overwhelmed. It was actually a great success in that regard. Now, now it's the fallout phase. This thing is still around. There's a thousand new cases a day in Massachusetts, okay, right? It, it's still out in our community, but we need to reopen the economy, right? And so now we're entering a different phase. You don't need clinical diagnostics. The customer is no longer your doctor. It's not, you don't need a test because you're showing up at the hospital. You need a test because you need to go to work. And, and the, the customer is the CEO of a company. It's, it is the president of a university. It is the mayor of a city who are trying to make decisions based on data, right? What they need to know is what is going on in, in, the popul in my population of employees and how can I respond and tamp down outbreaks that I can't see? And the, and the way you see them is with testing. It's, it's the visibility, right? And so that, it is a totally different scale. Right. It's, it's we go from needing a couple hundred thousand tests around the country uh, as we have today. We, you know, we're at about three, four hundred thousand. Right. Uh, countrywide to, you know, uh, Rockefeller now on the foundation side actually published one of the best reports on this, in my opinion, uh, which said we needed, you know, five million plus a day. Right. And, and I think other people are saying the number could be as high as 10 or 20 million a day. So 10 times up to up to maybe 20 times as much testing as we have right now in the country. You need if you wanted to really have workplace safety without, and really workplace continuity, like a lack of outbreaks, and then reduction of R, and then ultimately getting rid of the, the virus uh, around the country. And so that, that, those numbers are not gonna be delivered by the clinical diagnostics industry. You need new technology, you pay for it differently, you get the data out differently, the customers are different, on and on, it's all very different. And so that was what led us to build out the infrastructure we have because we recognized the existing industry wasn't well placed to do it uh and so we partnered uh, does that does that make sense just that distinction between clinical diagnostic and this like pandemic screening uh to open workplaces a hundred percent and it's also it's a it's a it's a it's a perfect framework for all of us to understand what happened before and 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 how society reacted and as you said needing to shut down uh but but now you, that can't go on so we're at a, a different point, and this is what you need if you're going to do that on a broad-based, safe effort. Whether you're the CEO of a company, the president of the university, you're running a county, you're running a state, it's all it, yep. it's, it's very clear. So, so, so that so so that 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 led you to to what you announced yeah. today. So, so keep going in terms of how how that's going to roll out, and even a, a, a timing. Uh, you know, wh when will you be able to start to to you know to serve those clients? Yeah. So, so to number one, we're we're serving folks now. So, so we're already uh, engaging with a, a couple of universities and companies about uh, setting up what the uh, those like epidemiological models, like what does this thing look like, how does it work? Uh, uh, in other words, what's the right testing strategy for you? We have partnerships with uh, current generation, uh, like Q, to get a little bit. I'll start getting a little technical here, right? So there's like. QPCR, you know, PCR-based testing, which you might have read about, okay? That's been the clinical diagnostic testing approach uh, that's been present over the last few months. We're partnering with labs doing that um, to essentially offer that to workplaces today 
tied to epidemiological model, right? So that's something that we can talk to companies today who are like, yep, I would like to stay on top of this. I want to make a plan and we can help with a plan and we can help give access to that testing. That can happen now. The issue is that testing is, is going to run out very quickly uh, if, if the uh, scale of uh, testing you need across a bunch of universities, even just as one, one area of the economy comes online, that will immediately drown the available testing. And so the second thing we're doing at Ginkgo is building out in partnership with Illumina, much larger scale testing. So we want to go from the you know kind of thousands of tests we have access to today uh, to our single facility in Boston being able to do somewhere between half a million and a million tests a day using this technology. To do that, we need to basically automate a lot of uh, uh, lab work and put it upstream of what's called a, a genome sequencer, which is a machine that Illumina sells. And that machine is used to sequence human genomes. So you might have heard of like the Human Genome Project. Yeah. This was uh, back in 2000. These machines basically sequence the human genomes of 4 billion letters of DNA times tens of genomes every day when they're being used for like medical applications and human genome sequencing. What we're doing is repurposing them to instead of sequencing a human genome, look for that viral DNA. And when it sees it, it says, okay, the virus is there. And then what we have done is we've added a little piece of DNA code to it to identify which record in the database that, uh, that sample is, is attached to. And so if you see a certain DNA code, a barcode, plus the presence of the virus, then you know that that person had a positive COVID-19. And so one washing machine sized device from Illumina can do about 100,000 of those tests in a day, right? But in order to feed it with all those barcoded samples, we have to build around it, you know, a 30,000 square foot automated lab to handle all the liquid handling and logistics. And that's, that's where really Ginkgo is the specialist. Uh, Illumina has, has, the, has the sequencing machines and we have this experience building out lab automation. And so that's that's sort of what brought us together. And Jason, that the the you're feeding the machine literally with hundreds of thousands of, of samples. You, you have yeah. the expertise on the samples. That's gotta be a a, a, a a complicated, difficult task to feed those samples through on a daily basis in that size, right? That is gonna be the hard part. Yep. And so the investment today, we announced a $70 million investment um, from Illumina and Viking and General Atlantic. Uh, that is to fund essentially the, the build, the expansion of what we have running at Pilot now into the scale where it is able to process through those ultimately, you know, call it half a million samples a day scale. It's building out all that infrastructure. And yeah, when you know, it'll look a lot like the labs we have now. It's, it's liquid handling robots. It's robotic arms moving plates around and rails. So it's, uh, it, it, it'll, uh, it'll be a very fancy lab environment, but you need that if you're going to run at that scale of uh, testing. And then the other thing you need is you need the samples to show up in a format that allows them to be uh, processed easily. And so we're, we're actually in a good, you know, the, the, our preferred part, uh, customers in this are large companies, large universities, places where a lot of tests can be collected at once, because that allows you then to get the collection to come and be shipped at scale and arrive at scale, which helps bring down the cost of running the test dramatically. Uh, which then allows the customer to run many more tests. And so that kind of bulk collecting is, is very valuable right now uh, it, logistically. And, and uh, two, two questions for you. One, you're building this uh, in Boston or outside of Boston? And how long will it take? Yeah, to yeah we're building it in Boston. And the goal, so, so we, would, we would like to have uh, be online at the scale of, of about 50,000. That's like one of our 
our pods. Uh, we want to have that online in, in sort of like the July timeframe. Uh, and then the half million scale is really for the fall. So that's, that's, that's geared around schools opening because we think that's going to be one of the areas that really needs a tremendous amount of testing. Uh, so that, that we are pushing very hard internally on that deadline because I personally think uh, it's, it's, it's one of these things that if we don't have it in place for the country, it's going to create a whole bunch of other problems. Uh, and so that, that has been a big internal push to, to hit that, that timeline for the fall. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're doing it because I mean, I've got college uh, students and uh, getting them back on campus. They, they all, one of the things that this time has proven is that uh, there's a value to education in a place with other students and faculty. Nobody wants to be online again. Uh, uh, come the fall, yeah. so, uh, it's a great push. Uh, Jason, what, what about uh, cost? How much does it cost to run these tests? You know, if you're a university right. and you ship, you know, you're a big yeah. university, you ship 25,000 tests, they package it, they ship them to you. Uh, you know, what, what's the what's the cost to them? And, uh, uh, you know, how's that going to roll out? Yeah, so, so today, so at the scale that's available now, uh, what you're seeing today is, is reimbursement insurance reimbursement is about a hundred dollars a test and you're seeing like private companies paying between a hundred and two hundred dollars a test today okay um i think with the with bring on really large scale you'd like to get that down in the tens of dollars you know uh, i think that you know low tens is really like the target we're going to see how well uh you can get all the scaling done um but but that that i think is is doable. Um, but right today, they are at about $100 a test, which is why, from my standpoint, it's very important to build out these, these models, because you don't want to over test, you know, like they're not cheap, right. And so, so that, that that's why it's not quite as simple. And honestly, like, who do you test? Like, you got students once a week, you, do, you know, right, like, like, it, it, there's two halves to this coin. One is having the testing capacity. And that's why we've already partnered up today um, with uh, clinical labs that can at least provide testing to current uh, folks we want to work with. And then the other half of it is being able to go into a university or workplace and say, okay, here's a model. What's the right number of tests to best reduce your rate of an outbreak and limit your spending, right? Uh, because that gets it out the, the most broadly and does the most good across the community. And so uh, that, that's kind of, you need both. Um, uh, but yeah, those are, those are kind of the, the, the prices for testing today. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, so Jason, uh, as as you get this up and running, and 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 this gets uh, uh, rolled out and perfected, it seems to me then, uh, as you know, we talked about before, that we're going to have more of these uh, this whole biological space uh, in in decades moving forward. We'll be much better positioned uh, to to deal with it uh, the next time around, right? With with things like this uh, being uh, perfected and implemented. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and maybe um, maybe one other thing I'd just add that I, I'm kind of bullish about in terms of like the private sector and universities participating in this whole thing. Um, I think people are like, they're a little bit misconstruing this as like just a worker safety issue. Like they're kind of putting it in that bucket, right? Which makes sense, right? Like, but remember the people aren't, like the first case of COVID-19 that's showing up at your workplace isn't coming from your workplace. If, you, if you're like, assume you start COVID free, okay? The first case is someone who got it somewhere else and they showed up to your workplace and and that was like the index case for your the, the this set of people that you're responsible for okay and so you're you are like you're handling that it, by, by keeping a lid on your group 
right? Like your flock. That, that outbreak doesn't happen at, at your university or your, your company. And then remember that prevented that outbreak from then going back and infecting the rest of the community. Like you're doing like a social good by having testing at your workplace, an extreme social good right now. Because if you are the one with the outbreak, then it's your people now who go to church and they go, you know, to shop or they go to whatever and they spread, they're the source of a lot more spreading of this virus within the, the community you live in, right? Think about Cow and Gown. Think about, you know, all these big companies and their relationships with their cities. Here's a big opportunity if you lean in and do, the, do this right to go and tell the, the, the local community you're in that like you're doing this this substantial good for that community and so i think i think there's like a interesting balance here where there's very much a win-win where you are both ensuring business continuity protecting your brand and keeping your workers safe and you are helping out your state government big time right and so that's a pretty cool or your or really even your city right because it's very local right very local uh and and so you don't you know that's a that's i think to me makes me optimistic that the private sector can actually play a big role coming up in helping the country out here um, and, and in doing it also very much in their own interest of maintaining business continuity. Yeah, so, so let me ask you, Jason, so can a, can a company, a university, a, a city, a state, uh, uh, engage directly with, uh, with Ginkgo? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we talk to people now and, and basically what, we're, what we do is we come, we get the details. Again, remember, because it's not one size fits all. So if you're in a locality that doesn't have much, you know, it could end up with a with a very thin or even no testing if you're like in Hawaii or something, right? And so the so there's there we're, we basically come in and and create a model for your specific situation with a goal of the minimal amount of testing that helps you get below a certain likelihood of having an outbreak because that's what you actually care about, right? Like you actually really do care that you don't have an outbreak because that is going to be extremely damaging to your business. And so you don't want to fly blind. And so what we're going to give you are the tools to not be blind. Here's the model. And then here's the tests that are going to then give you data into that model and operate in the midst of a pandemic for, you know, the next year and, you know, maybe two years if we're unlucky. Yeah. And actually you've seen this already, right? I mean, uh, I think it was Ford. I mean, there have been people, companies. And yeah, Ford had to close the F-150 plant. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't want to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. The, the, you know, the, the cost of that, uh, you know, and as you said, reputational and everything else. Um, so uh, you, you made the announcement today and it, it got a lot of attention. Did people really understand what it meant or did they just see large scale testing, which might be enough? And, and is the phone ringing off the hook with people saying, help me? So the phone is, what's really interesting is I think the, the, the universities are living like they're already kind of living two, three months in the future, right? And so they feel a lot of pressure. Now, they, they, and that's because A, they have a lot of people, and B, they know like the, the situation is probably gonna be a bit worse two or three months from now than it is now because we're gonna be reopening. So like the, the general level of spread in the community is actually gonna be worse than it is today. And so they feel it more acutely, right? Everyone else has been largely, I think, a lot of focus on things like PPE and trying to get their effective contact rate down, which is a great thing to be doing, by the way, right? Like, how do I reorient my office so that people can be sitting X feet apart, which I do with the HVAC system and all this stuff, right? Uh, and then what's happening now is, is the, people are getting a better awareness because they're seeing, there's just a Wall Street Journal article on, I think, uh, two days ago that talked about, you know, uh, Smithfield, United Health, uh, Tyson, Ford, all, all do it, Walmart doing regular testing. 
Amazon is building their own testing. Amazon is building diagnostic testing facilities for, for their employees because they're all, they've been operating and they're like, they're, they're realizing they were flying blind, right? And so, so I think that is, that, since that article came out, we've gotten a lot more inbound about this. So yeah, I think, I think people are waking up to it. Um, but we're, it's, we're, you know, here's the reality. This is new to all of us, right? Uh, you know, we're like the last time corporations and, and our economy had to live through this was in 1918, right? Like that was the last time we really had to shut everything down. And we did, by the way. Like it was very similar the, the, uh, and we just haven't been through it since then. And so we don't know what to do and we're all kind of, and, and now we have modern tools that give us a better shot. Uh, and so that, that's why this is also confusing, right? It, you know, it's, it's, I think people misconstrue it and they think it's like people are like fighting or it's like a political battle. It's also just, it's just new. And so as business leaders, leaders in general, we're all trying to figure out, okay, it's a, it's a new terrain. What, what's the right best practices, you know, and it's very new terrain. I don't know. And I'm hearing this from this guy and that from that guy. Uh, and so, you know, I think, but, it's, but at least accepting that it's new terrain, I think it's smart. And then you can evaluate. We're very happy to, to fill people in on what would be a good plan for them. Um, you know, there, you can go to, if you go to ginkgobioworks.com, there's a link at the top where you can um, get to our contact and, and we're, we'd happily do, uh, you know, an audit and, and show you what testing would look like for your organization. Um, but yeah, it is a tough, it's a tough moment right now, I think, um, right coming up in the next couple of months as we reopen. No, I think it, it is. Uh, but as, as we both said, I mean, th there is no choice. Uh, you know, if, if, if optimistically the vaccine is, is a year from now and it could be longer, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with it. You, you can't stay shut down. So let, let me ask you a question, Jason, and then uh, I don't want to end on this one. We'll, I'll, I'll end on a more optimistic note, but just. Yeah. You know, you 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 have this in my head because of cyber uh, in the biology space. So, yeah. uh, how realistic a threat is engineered biology going forward? Is this something that uh, that West, you know, that governments and countries are going to be dealing with? And are, are and you know, the obvious question I was going to say: are, are we equipped to deal with it? So far, not. Uh, but is this going right. to be? You know, are we living in a new world now uh, in, in terms of? Uh, you know, a threat to our, our you know, you, you've shut the economy down. I mean, the, the shock, as you said, in so many ways, uh, this is the real deal. So, it, you know, is engineered biology a, a real threat to us as a country, uh, you know, going forward? Yeah, I mean, here's the reality. Right now, the, the rate that nature is exper experimenting with things like this is substantially greater than humans are. So that's very good, right? You know, they, there's a worldwide moratorium on biological weapons, which is adhered to like maybe with the exception of North Korea, um, but even them. Uh, and so I think we're, we're starting from a good place. I think the reality though is it's very clear we're still uh, susceptible to, to this stuff, right? You know, and I think that, that was a little bit not as obvious to everyone. And so that, that, that's why like, well, you know, I started this whole thing saying we should use COVID-19. And, and by the way, just the enormous economically rational investment that should be made in infrastructure to respond to this thing right because like we're, we're we're all just aware of like how insane the economic cost all of this is right and so by investing to relieve that so that we can get more economic value we as a side effect of that should basically make a pandemic shield so that this thing is just these just just can't happen again period end of story and that pandemic shield looks like surveillance which we didn't talk about today but basically catching an epidemic real quick right, when it's just at the beginning, testing available at scale capacity. So like what we're building up at Ginkgo, like with sequencers, that's future proof. You can use that for any future virus because they all run on DNA. You just surge it. So the minute you see 
that that type of thing, you uh, immediately every single person in the city gets tested. It's actually what they just did in Wuhan earlier this week. But like you just surge and drown it. And in the event you can't drown it, then you have stuff like Moderna, these like RNA vaccines that can be developed very quickly. You use the tools of programming biology to, to make it faster to get to a vaccine. And so that, that those are kind of the three legs of the stool. If we get good at that, which we should get very good at it here in the course of COVID, uh, I think it, it will be ineffective to try to engineer one and the, and the social and political consequences of doing it would be so great you wouldn't bother. But, but we got to build that infrastructure today to make that a non, to make that impossible, basically. And I think it can be done uh, uh, with the tools we have now and, and, the, and the opportunity around COVID is to do it. Well, that, that's a great spot for me to, maybe we can wrap on that, which is, um, it sounds to me that uh, based upon what you're seeing uh, at this point in time, uh, and, and obviously you and Ginkgo are at the center of uh, at least one, one part of it, um, that uh, you're optimistic that uh, the, the, the dollars will be spent, the lessons instilled, and the pandemic shield potentially created in this country coming out of this. Is that, is that fair? I think it's fair. And I know the other thing I think is what I like about this, I think you see countries respond to this in different ways, right? You know, like, like in Asia, it's a lot of like mass mobilization, right? Like getting lots of people to all do the same thing, right? Uh, this has not historically been a strength of the U.S., right? Uh, the, the, uh, but in the U.S., like, you know, we, we are killer in private industry life sciences. We have amazing research universities, right? Like, 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 like those, are, those are the tools we will bring to bear to this. Right, which is why we're we're so so fast in development on the vaccine, which is why you see us leading on these next generation testing, because that that's our bones, right? And and so we'll be the ones who like invent our way out of it, and then the, those become then the basis for how next time it's a hell of a lot easier to put something like this to bed. That'll be U.S. led, in my opinion, uh, you know, and and that's you know we got sucker punched over the last three months, like we don't, you know, I don't think we will be in the next six if we if we, you know, do our jobs. <laughs> well, that's a good spot for me to pull it all together. Um, uh, Jason, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody at Rockefeller. Uh, this is what we try to bring to our clients, which is um, cutting edge uh, thinking and, uh, uh, you know, focus around the things that are relevant, highly relevant in, uh, in the daily lives of our clients and the people close to them. So can't thank you enough for being on here today when uh, it had to be one of the busiest days for you and for uh, Ginkgo since its founding. Um, the I want to remind everybody on the phone that uh, because this will get a lot of uh, a, a lot of attention, what Jason said here, uh, given the clarity with which he explained it all, that you can go to an iPhone. Uh, by the way, th these are my words, but they work. You go to your iPhone, you pull up the app podcast and you uh, look for Rockefeller Client Insights. And later this evening, you will hear this interview and be able to point uh, friends and whomever you want to uh, hear Jason. Uh, they can they can uh, they can just pull it up on their uh, iPhone. So, uh, Jason, I always uh, end all of these and as well as town halls at our firm and anything uh, with a large group with a quotation of the day. This one is for you um, because of uh, the things that you are you you all are doing and making possible here. Uh, Mandela uh, said, um, it always seems impossible until it is done. Um, and as you said, uh, country may be sucker punched here, uh, but uh, getting off the mat uh, and uh, companies like Inco. And it, I, I tried to summarize in the beginning what you just said, which is we're really good at this, 
we're not good at uh, you know, at stopping it and jumping on the spread and testing everybody and having people act in a uniform fashion, but we're good at this. And uh, Jason Kelly and Ginko are at the center of that. So that great Mandela quote, uh, I'm always amazed that he uh, said that given the challenges that he was subjected to in life uh, is how we end today. So uh, many thanks again for being on here. Uh, we're all wishing you well, and um, we will have many clients, companies, universities that'll be reaching out for your expertise. So uh, thanks again for being on.